0: So again, sit in a way that's at ease and comfortable, Um, nothing that you have to particularly worry about remembering from this, no exams, no grades, just a kind of meditative listening or reflection to sense what might be true for you and what's not just let it go. There's a lot out on the airwaves these days that you need to sort through, as you probably noticed. And um, most of it, I think, needs the delete button, as best as I can tell. (sighs) So thank you for coming. Thank you for your kind attention. Over the course of this summer we've been working with a Buddhist teaching on the uh, what are called the natural perfections of the heart or one's own true nature or Buddha nature and talking about in these past weeks the innate generosity that is there within us um, when almost any circumstance that allows us to be generous Um, pulls that beautiful quality out of our being. Or the innate qualities of integrity, renunciation, um, the qualities of uh, aliveness that are here when the outside shells of um, fear, protectedness, the small sense of self drop away even for a moment. How much actually there is in us that is connected, loving, gracious. And it's said in these teachings that um, to fulfill the Buddha nature takes a hundred thousand mahakalpas of practice and four immensities. I gave a little bit of the the traditional image of this amount of time. One mahakalpa is described as the mountain that's higher than Mount Everest and every hundred years the bird comes along With a silk scarf in its beak and drags it across the top of the mountain, wearing it away. And when that mountain is worn down by the by the bird, that's one Mahakalpa. (laughs) And a a hundred thousand of those is the practice of patience and integrity and generosity until you get it right. Okay. (laughs) So normally you hear that and you go, you know, I mean, I'm having enough trouble, you know, today or this month and so forth. Um, But the reason that those myths and metaphors are spoken in that language is to take them outside of time. It's not just the long view, but it's really the view of eternity. O nobly-born, rediscover that in yourself that is innately generous and good, that is innately beautiful and wise. And tonight, the quality of this inner nobility that uh, Buddha-nature speaks of is the quality of prajna, or wisdom, our innate wisdom. And when we think about the, the word perfection, which is sometimes used with these teachings, the perfection of wisdom, it can get really confusing for us in America, you know, because we want to have a perfect body, right? Well, forget that, okay. <laughs> Well, how about a perfect personality? Maybe enough therapy and, you know, various things, meditation. But, you know, you've tried that too, and that's sort of... And we get to what Mary Ludman describes as the addiction to perfection, trying to make everything a certain way. What this speaks of is an entirely different understanding of perfection called the great natural perfection, the universal qualities of freedom and beauty that are the basis of our human heart in any circumstance. Now, prajna, wisdom, in you know, it's also uh, the quality of Sophia or of Saraswati, has a quality of graciousness, consideredness, easiness, lightness of heart. When you meet someone who's wise, and you all know, people who are wise in some way or other, there's a kind of ease about them. The wise quality in them, and actually in us, because they're mirrors for our own heart, has this graciousness, this sense of trust, this ability to be with the way things are and not the way that we imagine that they're supposed to be. There's a kind of letting go in it. Um, At the end of many evenings here, we do a little chant that comes from the Sutra of Perfect Wisdom in 80,000 verses. And that text is summed up in 8,000 verses and in 800 verses. And fortunately for our sake of discussion, it's also summed up in this one syllable, which is the seed syllable of wisdom, because it's considered the first sound in life and the last sound. And most importantly, It's the sound of letting go, or opening. It's the seed syllable, ah. And when we go ah, a big ah, there also is a just, there's a letting go and an opening to where we are and who we are just now. A kind of graciousness. So, wisdom is not knowledge. We have a culture that collects knowledge and information. And there's all the kinds of worldly knowledge, you know, whether it's the um, human genome or the um, knowledge, that this kinds of scientific knowledge or the psychological knowledge or the sociological knowledge or the artistic knowledge and so forth. And then there's all this spiritual knowledge, you know, past lives and chakras and all kinds of um, astral experiences and so forth. But wisdom doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, Nor does it have to do with powers. Sometimes you think, well, if I develop spiritually, you know, then I'll be like one of those great yogis with all these powers to read people's minds and know the future and all of that kind of thing. I don't know if I want to know the future, actually. (laughs) But um, here it is. Now, those guys can sit naked in the snow at 18,000 feet, and they have such powers of mental discipline that if they put their mind to it, They can generate enough heat to melt snow for 20 feet around. Now you put that Tibetan priest on the mound with a baseball in his palm and he'll take that power of concentration and make the ball disappear and then materialize down the line in the catcher's mitt. That's my idea of a relief pitcher. (laughs) So there are all these stories about powers and spiritual knowledge and so forth. But if we're really wise about it and look, we know that power has very little to do with wisdom. And there are certain people who have a lot of knowledge and there are certain people who carry or channel a great deal of power that are not wise <laughs> or quite the opposite, nor <laughs> are compassionate. So what is the quality of wisdom and how do we reawaken it in ourselves? Especially in a world that is at this time characterized by a great deal of delusion and ignorance and lies and injustice and war and racism and the kind of suffering that human beings get caught up in that is the opposite of wisdom. Three kinds of wisdom Sutta Mayapany, Chintamayapanya and Bhavana maya panya. Prajna. The first kind of wisdom is the wisdom that we hear, that we're reminded of, that evokes in us a possibility of seeing with a wise heart. The second comes from our reflection, our consideration, our examination. How is it when we look at the world that we might see with the eyes of wisdom? And then the third is the knowing heart is this place in us that my teacher Ajahn Chah called the One Who Knows. Now, some years ago, and I'm reminded of this story because I told you last week about um, Irene, dear friend Irene, who died and all the people that she asked about death, um, how she should die before she died. Um, A woman came to me in Massachusetts whose husband had been a doctor in the community and died unexpectedly. Um, and because they'd been part of the Buddhist community, but also some of the other spiritual communities there, the Sufi and Christian community in the Amherst area, um, and were well loved, everybody came to cook and provide meals and comfort her and try to offer what they could, including spiritual teachings. And after a time, the Tibetan Lama came over and various teachers came. And then at some point, um, <coughs> She came to talk to me. She said, I, I'm, I'm having a diff problem. I said, well, what's the matter? She said, well, this wonderful Tibetan Lama came over some days after my husband died and closed his eyes and told me that he had been tracking my husband's spirit in the bardo and that um, uh, he was just fine, you know, that he'd reached this particular realm of, certain kind of light and and awakening and and, um, I was really reassured by this. This is a beautiful thing. Um, But a few days later, uh, a uh, Christian mystical teacher that is a good friend of ours and whom we admire came and he said, you know, I had this dream of your husband and he's with the Ascended Masters and he gave me this whole other vision and I started to get a little confused. And then I got a call from the Sufi teacher that lives in Boston that (laughs) we studied with. And he told me that, you know, my husband was, um, his spirit was already um, taking birth in a womb of a woman in Washington, D.C., and he'd done all this on her. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, where is he, right? (laughs) So she came to ask me. And of course I said, I have no idea.
1: <laughs>
0: and she said, but isn't, aren't, aren't you supposed to know?
1: <laughs>
0: and I said, you know, all these are really stories about something that is so vast and mysterious. If you have the opportunity to sit with someone when they die, it's the most extraordinary thing to have this person who's full of vitality in life and visions and ideas and imagination and communication. And then there's just this meat body. There's just something that you would see in the butcher store. I mean, it's so clearly not who that person is. Um, and uh, something happens that's so mysterious. And it's going to happen to you, by the way, just in case. <laughs> you know, we're not just talking theoretically here. Um, and then, you know, a death, a, a, a conscious, a beautiful death is silent, mysterious. The image I get is like a falling star. It's something that you see and that disappears into the sky and that's so mysterious. So she looked at me and she said, so who do I believe? What can I believe? And I said, well, suppose that instead of my telling you where he is or getting another opinion, suppose instead I were to ask you this simple question. What do you know in your heart to be true? No matter what anybody else would say, even if the Buddha and Jesus and Muhammad and, you know, whoever, Gandhi, whoever you like, um, Mother Mary and everybody came and they said it wasn't so, you would look them in the eye and say, yes it is, because you know it, this One who knows. She said, well, she reflected for a little bit. She said, the one thing I guess I could say is that everything changes. And I look back and I said, if you can live your life from that understanding that everything changes, that is the seed of all the wisdom that you need because it's the way that things are. If you can accept that truth and live from that, And I've often asked this in groups, sort of having this conversation, what do you know that is absolutely true, no matter what other spiritual opinions you get? Someone will raise their hand and they'll say, well, whatever point of view I have, I know there's another, right? That's a pretty deep truth. Somebody else might raise their hand, you know, and say, there is light and dark, and praise and blame, and gain and loss, and joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain, they seem to come together in opposites, and that's how it is. And you can reflect about it. What is it that you know that is true? Because wisdom is not something that's accumulated. It's not a matter of something collected from the past or for the future. It is the heart's knowing of the way that life is. <clears throat> From the Tao Te Ching. When people see some things as beautiful, other things become ugly. When people so- see some things as good, other things become bad. Being and non-being create each other. Difficult and easy support each other. Long and short define each other. High and low depend on one another. Before and after follow each other. The master acts without doing anything and teaches without saying anything. Things arise and she lets them come, and when things disappear, she lets them go. So maybe you can begin to hear or be reminded of what the place of wisdom is in your own innate being. O oh, nobly born, discover the wisdom that, was in, that has been in you since before your birth. And wisdom is always now. You know, somebody went to the great sage Ramana Maharshi and asked him, can a yogi know their future lives and what happens after death? And Ramana just shook his head and looked rather compassionately and said, already your life has many troubles. Why should you wish to know future lives? Is it to have more trouble? Know the present and the rest will take care of itself. The eternal truth is here and now. If eternity is not now, when will you find it? However many holy words you read, however many you speak, says the Buddha, what good will it do, or they do, if you do not live them here and now? So the Japanese poet Ikkyu, who writes, Long life, the wild pines want it too. I'm 70, still alive, looking up every night, snapping my fingers at time, at the promise of love. He was a bit of a rascal. I like him. (laughs) I'd love to give you something, but what would help? Self, other, right, wrong? Wasting your life arguing. Face it, you're happy. Really happy. Don't worry, please. How many times do I have to say it? There's no way not to be who you are and where. Don't worry, please. How many times do I have to say it? There's no way not to be who you are and where. So wisdom is that quality that allows us to live in the reality of the present, to be alive in the present, which is all we have. The past is a memory. It might be a good memory, but it's gone. And often it's not the best memory, if you look honestly. And the future is just a fantasy, whatever you imagine. The only place of wisdom is where we are, the eternal present. And when you encounter someone who's wise, when that wisdom reflects back and you live from wisdom, you live where you are. Now my teacher, Ajahn Chah, who is one of the wise beings, I suppose, I've been uh, fortunate enough to be with in my life. He used to sit in this little kind of wooden um, seat under his cottage and receive visitors who would come from around the country in Thailand to his forest monastery with problems to solve and difficulties in their, you know, their questions and so forth. And it was kind of like watching Solomon or something like that because he was wise. Mostly he was very simple and he was happy. He was a happy person. There was this kind of joy of wisdom, the, the laughter of the wise. And a lot of his teachings could be summed up in three words. It's like this. He'd come in and he'd say, and, it's, and he'd look at me and say, yeah, it's like this, isn't it? And then you'd say, and he'd say, yeah, it's like this, isn't it? Things are the way they are. You know, he and he would just tell people the truth. You know, people would come and they'd say, this is making me angry, and he'd look at them and they'd say, well, whose fault is that?
1: <laughs>
0: and you'd have to think about it. Or this woman I remember coming whose child died, and it was, she was grieving terribly, and he just looked at her and he said, it hurts so much, doesn't it? And that's all. And then he told the story, the Buddhist story of Kisa Gotami, the woman whose child died, that most of you know this parable. And she came to the Buddha, wailing and carrying her child's body and said, I have heard you are the great blessed one, bring my child back to life. And the Buddha said, okay, I will. But first, you must go into the town and bring me mustard seed, which is the most common spice in India, like salt, pepper, mustard seed, she said, oh, I'll do that, ah, but it must be from a house, a compound where no one has died. So Kisakotami Tommy, carrying this body of her child, weeping, went through the streets of the town, knocked on each door, she came to it. Do you have mustard seed to save my child? Oh, yes, we will give you. Has anyone in this house died? Oh, my uncle has died. My grandfather, next house. Oh, a young child died. And by the time she had gone through 5, 10, 15, 20 compounds, she couldn't find a single place where someone had not died. And so she came back to the Buddha weeping and said, Ah, I thought, I thought it only happened to me. And then the Buddha chanted and blessed her child who had died and blessed her. And this was Ajahn Chah child dies, it really hurts, doesn't it? It's the way that it is. Or people would come who are sick, and he'd look at it and say, oh, you're sick. Happens, doesn't it? And he'd say, so how do you do sickness? Are you one of the crabby ones, you know? <laughs> are you easy with it? I mean, he didn't judge it, he just asked. Oh, this is a crabby one, okay. That's an easy one. Just the way things are, you know? Or somebody would come and uh, ask about money and business and whatever and the difficulties. And he'd just look back and he'd say, you know, what's going to happen getting this kind of advice from a teacher? He'd say, it's uncertain, isn't it?
1: <laughs>
0: and then he'd just laugh. He'd say, it's uncertain. That's the way it works. <laughs> You're looking for certainty in the business world? It's uncertain, isn't it? <laughs> or people would be there. I remember when Ramdas came with us to... Uh, visit Ajahn Chah in the 1970s I brought Ram Dass and a crew of friends, Joseph Goldstein teachers, to visit Ajahn Chah. And um, Ram Dass, at that point he was in his, I guess he was in his um, mid-late 40s and he'd been, just come from Bali where he'd been surfing and getting tan on the beaches and he was really into kind of (laughs) taking care of himself and being young in some way or other. Um, but he was still about 15 or 20 years older than the rest of us who were like in our late 20s at that point. Um, so we all sat down to see Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Chah kind of, I introduced everybody and he kind of peered at the group like he did and Ramdas still of course had his beard and stuff and he looked at me and said, who's the old man you brought? Me? And, you know, it was like his first, you know, and then years later I, I'd go back to see him periodically and look him, he looked at me and says, oh, you're aging, yeah, how's that? You know, just, This is the way things are. What is true about life? What is true about your life? What is so that asks for your wise heart to accept it, to see it the way it is? Wisdom is like the lamp relit in the darkness, like the sun arising in the morning. It shows things the way they are. Trouble, says Zorba. Life is trouble. Only death is nice. To learn is to roll up your sleeves and embrace trouble. There's no other way. Thank you, Zorba. So the quality of wisdom is really innate in us, and it doesn't take very long once you turn off the TV, right? And turn off the computer and stuff, and just sit for a minute and ask yourself what is wise. I mean, you're wise for your friends. Your friends come and ask you advice, right? so much easier to be wise for somebody else. <laughs> That's why we meditate in some way to be that friend for ourselves, to touch that place of wisdom. So, in Michigan State, the Psychological Services of the Office of Education developed a program to be implemented statewide for reducing the stress levels measured in school-aged children. Okay? The program centered around the introduction of deep and relaxing breathing. But after two months, the program was canceled due to a rash of parent complaints that the effect of deep breathing was producing mystical experiences in other non-Christian states in their children.
1: <laughs>
0: this is true. So watch out. Right? Better turn the TV back on while you can. The wise heart sees life as it is. It is spacious it tells the truth about things, and then once the truth is seen, the wise heart also knows how to respond. There's a spacious quality to wisdom and a responsive quality, the mirror-like quality that responds. And that response comes out of a knowing the way things are. We discover that we live in this flow of seasons, you know, Let's see, in the Tao where it says there's a time for being ahead and a time for being behind, a time for motion and a time for rest. Or in Ecclesiastes, to everything there's a season and to every time a purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die and a time to plant and a time to reap that which is planted, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and dance. And it is so. This is the cycles of life, and the wisdom heart in us knows this is so. We might resist and say, no, I don't want this cycle. But it is the way that it is. (laughs) Last week I was telling you about the men's retreat in Mendocino that I just returned from, teaching with Luis Rodriguez, this quite amazing Latino poet who works with youth gangs in Los Angeles, with Michael Mead, who works with young people in prisons around the country, with Orland Bishop, others. And one of the things that started in this retreat, we were doing storytelling and myths and um, drumming, music, um, and one of the great myths, that uh, a Native American story that Michael Mead began to drum and tell, had early on in the story um, a great betrayal in it. So all the kinds of betrayals and difficulties of people's lives came out in the conversation in this room, very painfully so. People who, you know, been betrayed in all kinds of ways. And then at one point, uh, a young man stood up who'd been to one of these retreats in Mendocino four or five years before, when he was 19. And he stood up and he said, "Um, I've just come back from Iraq. I was in the Marines. And I left Najaf two weeks ago. And we'd been talking because there were some gang um, mentors there and young guys who were coming out of the gangs in L.A. and they were talking about their homies who'd been shot and killed in this last month and gang fights and things like that. And he stood up and he said, well, me too. I've just come back from Iraq. And he said, and uh, I, I can't hardly talk. I, I can't even be in this room of men. It's so difficult. I feel like... He said, I feel like running out of here and screaming. And he said, I can't tell you what I saw. It was so terrible. And then he paused, and we all kind of took that in. And then he said, and I can't tell you what I did. Um, And he's a beautiful young man, just back from being in the Marines. There was another guy back from uh, military recently too. So, at that point, or shortly after, Michael Mead stopped the work we were doing together and said, I have to tell you a story. He said, because in our culture, we don't have the rituals that mark the seasons of our life. We've lost the sense of the sacred, and in ancient Ireland, there was a ritual. They knew that when a warrior comes back from battle, and here we won't even say, you know, whether it's the right battle to be fought. That's a whole other conversation that we've had. But even so, when you send your young men, and I think about the young men who are there in Iraq, and the young men on the other side who are fighting as well, the Iraqis. When we send our young men into battle and then they come back and they get a little bit of money and you know, they're just sent back home, it's insane. He said, so the story he told was of this Irish warrior whose name I can't remember, you know, oh, uh, I can't even say the Irish word, the long Irish name, but great warrior. He said, and he was, he was one of the great um, uh, vision, uh, great um, figures of the Irish warriors. Um, and it's said in the old Ireland that when the warriors went to battle, um, they went into battle naked, shouting, screaming, um, wore just a little gold chain around their neck. And they were so ferocious that mostly people just ran away when they saw them. (laughs) So this man went into battle and took, you know, fight for his clan and apparently had a huge battle and was headed back to his village possessed by Mars, by the god of war. You know that possession because our whole country gets possessed by it. I mean, we become a warlike nation. We do. And here he was possessed by this energy. He'd been so immersed in it, like this fellow who stood up that he was in his chariot, buried down on his own village, ready to kill the people there too, because he was in such the mode of battle, you know, with his banners flying and, and blood, blood on the tip of every hair and blood coming out of his mouth, the blood of battle, and his eyes wide like this. And he said, so first, the men of the village came out in a line and sung to him a song from their childhood, from his childhood. And then the women of the village stepped in front of the men and all bared their breasts, young and old, this whole line of women, and walked toward him. This slowed him down. <laughs> and actually, the guy from back from Iraq, a little smile came to his face as he heard, heard this image. When the warrior in the chariot with the banners, you know, coming was slowed down, then the men got behind him and tied him in a rope. And they, they, they had three uh, great cauldrons filled with cold water. They put him in the first one, all the water just steamed out. They took his body and they put it in the second one, and it boiled for a while, and they took his body and put him in the third one, and finally he's quieted down some. And then the man lifted his body out of there and carried him with honor, singing a song to him, and laid him at the feet of the king for three days where the poets wrote stories about his adventures and where he heard the life of the court um, and where he was gradually brought back into the community. So Michael told this story and then shortly after that a hundred men stood up and sang to this man who was just back from Najaf this beautiful African melody that we had been singing together and really sung him back into his body. So this is the quality of wisdom that sees that things are the way they are, that life is in this process of change, of coming and going, of birth and death, of gain and loss, and responds to it as it is, rather than struggling and fighting, not wanting it to be the way it is. The wisdom of the heart sees that this is the way our human life is and knows how to respond. It also sees, the wise heart, that nothing is permanent, whether it's that trauma that he experienced, or the losses, or the gains, whatever it is. In the Diamond Sutra it says, Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. Our life, which seems so real to us, and is, and needs to be respected in that way, can turn in a moment and change. And it's here in this way, and then it turns to something else. And if you haven't found that out, you will, because it's how it is. The The wise heart knows that life is a flow and rests in the midst of it. As it says in the Tao, The wind cannot shake a mountain, neither praise nor blame can touch the wise. Gain and loss, joy and sorrow. There is a sense of spaciousness of heart, a kind of openness that rests in eternity, that says, yes, this is the life that we're given as human beings. And from this, then, we can engage the world, not from fear and need and confusion, but from what we know most deeply. When my teacher Ajahn Jemnian is here, those of you who've heard him come from the Malay forests, you know, his, his, the only two words he speaks in English are empty and happy. He says empty, empty, happy, happy. <laughs> empty, empty, happy, happy. When we see this, then we also see the way the world works. We see the eternal law of karma, that what we do and how we act creates what will come. So my teacher Gosananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia, even in the Holocaust in Cambodia, went around reciting the words of the Buddha, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. It is just the way that it is. And no matter what happens in this country and, you know, all the, the madness of kind of making fortress America, you don't get security that way. I mean, we know that. Life is insecure. And what brings us security is wisdom and compassion and understanding. The thought manifests as deed, the deed develops into habit, the habit hardens into character, the character passes into a lifetime. So watch the ways of thought with care and let it spring from loving kindness for all that lives. From the place of wisdom, we contend to our own thoughts, to our actions, to our care. care for what we do because we know that we are planting the seeds that will bear fruit. Wisdom brings happiness an openness of heart, the ability to bless, no matter what. The Buddha started his teachings with the truth of suffering. This is also a part of wisdom, that greed creates suffering, hatred creates suffering, delusion, confusion, grasping, Create suffering. But then he said, you don't have to suffer. He said this with the wisdom and compassion and ease of a Buddha. You do not have to suffer. Your heart can be free. There is another way. This poem from David Budbill, like, like his poetry, he writes Hanshan, That great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around never leaving their bowl. I say that's right, every day climbing up the steep side, sliding back, over and over again, round and round, up and back down. So, sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around. See your fellow bugs. Walk around. Say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. (laughs) This is it. This is our life. It is. Unfortunately, we have the Republicans and the Democrats. It's what we got in our bowl, right? This is the way things are. I remember Ajahn Chah when he came to visit our center in Massachusetts and uh, we were out walking on the lawn one day and he turned to Sharon Salzberg, my colleague and friend, and he said, so have you finished all the suffering in your life? Just kind of laughing, as he did, That's <laughs> kind of why. And she said, no, and he said, well, then how can you teach other people? You know, how do you do that? Kind of curious. And she paused for a minute, you know, this is a little bit of a challenge from the master. And she said, because I know its cause and I know that it can end. And he smiled, he said, that's pretty good. <laughs> when Thich Nhat Hanh first came to San Francisco Zen Center, you know, 15, 20 years ago, everyone was sitting this very formal rigorous Zen practice. And he said, where's the joy here? <laughs> he said, you never smile. Everybody's so serious about getting enlightened or whatever it is. In fact, he said he wouldn't come back unless they started to smile. This is a true story. So the wisdom of the heart sees the unbearable beauty and the unspeakable sorrow of this world. This is the way the world is and smiles anyway. It's so mysterious and amazing. Wisdom is allows us to know the mystery because we're not in a hurry to get somewhere else, we are where we are. Um, It's sometimes called don't know mind wisdom in the Korean Zen tradition, or the cloud of unknowing in the Christian mystical tradition. Who are you? Don't know. Where are you going? Really? Come on. Don't know. Where are you going to end up? Where did you come from before this life? Don't know. What is love? Somebody explain it to me. Don't know. How about consciousness? I mean, this thing that you, you know, possess. Anybody understand? Don't know. (laughs) Then the Zen master says, good, you keep don't know. (laughs) This is a good mind, right? Because it's, I mean, look at our life, you know, whether it's love or consciousness or hair. I mean, we after have, we have all, we did, in some cases, in some parts of our body and not others. I mean, how did that happen, right? Or eyes. I mean, I could do this whole weird thing, you know. An eyeball is the most bizarre thing. And then light comes in, and you get images. Of things are the way we ambulate in this physical body you've been given you fall one direction and catch yourself then you fall the other way and you catch yourself and that's how we move we lumber it on this <laughs> it is bizarre it is how did you get in there <laughs> and then sex okay come on tell me you haven't had a moment in there where you have said this is really weird I mean it's great it's fabulous But it's also really weird, right? (laughs) This is how we make more people, right? (laughs) Or banana slugs and moths and the fact that there are one million different species of beetles on this earth. Where did those beetles come from, you know? So the wise one, says the Buddha, does not rest in any view. They don't argue. The philosopher is wedded to their opponent. Those who are wise do not rest in any view. With whom could they quarrel? If you have no view, no, you know, this is right and that's wrong, that kind of view of, I mean, there is a kind of wisdom of what's correct. But the the depth of wisdom is to see the mystery of life. It is so mysterious. Those who have many views, said the Buddha, go around annoying other people. I think he said that with some humor myself. So the wise heart is present for another human being, for ourself, for the circumstances of the earth. It's like a mirror that sees the way things are and then can respond. Ram Dass's teacher, Maharaji, when Ram Dass, they ask, well, how do we, I get enlightened? What is enlightenment? He said, love people. How do I express this enlightenment? He said, feed people. From the wise heart, it sees the beings of the world often entangled in folly and stupidity and suffering and, and the creation of more suffering. From the Mahamudra texts, This is the final insight. Now you know how to leave every thought and experience alone, neither resisting it nor falling under its spell. The heart is free, and now there is born in you exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do not remember the essence of their own mind. You will spend your life working for the sake of these others, but all your meditations have cleansed away any idea that these others really exist separate from yourself. It's just us. It's just us. And so this aspect of wisdom sees the sorrow and the confusion and responds. You see someone sick, you bring medicine. You see the hungry, you feed them. You see racism and injustice, what can you do but say this is insanity? We have to do it another way, you respond. You see the poor in spirit, and you offer your heart. Imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arm full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you so that you fall and your groceries are strewn over the ground. As you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you're ready to shout, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you can catch your breath to speak, you see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. He too is sprawled in the spilled groceries and tomato juice and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you up? Our situation is like this. When we clearly realize that the source of misery and suffering in this world is ignorance, is blindness, then we open the door of wisdom. And compassion. And this wisdom is unafraid. It's fearless. It can speak the truth. It can speak of peace and wartime. It can speak of justice in the face of injustice. It can speak of the insanity of the things we're doing and the wise way to live, no matter what happens. And always with kindness, always with a kind of compassion connected with it. Here is Socrates. He says, Could I climb the highest place in Athens? I would lift my voice and proclaim, Fellow citizens, why do you turn and scrape every stone to gather wealth and take so little care of your children to whom someday you must relinquish it all? I hope that the uh, political parties would take heed of Socrates. It's so obvious, isn't it? Wisdom is really so obvious. The Plain Tree, patient-centered hospital. You were there and you would not know it was a hospital. It doesn't look like an ordinary hospital. Now there's hundreds in the country. Classical music plays softly in the background. Patients wear their own robes and pajamas, sleep on flowered sheets and are encouraged to sleep in as long as they like. There's no nurse's station. It's been replaced by a convenient study area where patients are encouraged to read their own charts and write in them what's happening as well. There are no visiting hours. Friends and family are welcome at all times convenient to the patient. Family members cook for their ailing loved ones in special patients' kitchens. And other family members are trained to serve as care partners, changing dressings, flushing out IV limes, performing other vital nursing services. Once patients get a taste of the plane tree model, they simply won't permit themselves to be admitted anywhere else. It sounds so obvious, doesn't it? I mean, you go to a place for healing and you make a healing environment. We know this. We know wisdom as surely as we know our own breath. And the invitation of meditation, the invitation of a spiritual life, is not to create wisdom for yourself but to return to, and more than anything, trust that knowing and compassionate heart. We know what's right, we know what's wise, we know that the world changes and that we have to be able to accommodate this world of birth and death and joy and sorrow. And as soon as you get caught up in something, step back, sit for a moment, Touch into this place of the wisdom heart. Ask yourself, what is really wise? And you'll know. You will know if you really listen. It's said in the Buddhist teachings that the wise are both still in their being and yet infinitely caring. Can you feel how those two could come together? That there's a place of stillness and presence, and then from that, a knowing what to do. And you know what to do in the little things and in the big ones that the world asks. And there isn't a formula. No one has ever lived in this time before. No one has ever lived your individual life before. No one can tell you. And I went to be with a woman who was dying in uh, San Rafael. And she was really upset because she had worked in a, a foundation and then in running a big nonprofit. And she loved doing it. She was quite extroverted and she had all these people that she was serving and caring for. She was kind of the servant bodhisattva type model of you know, karma yogi. And now as she was dying, All the people that she'd helped wanted to see her, and thank her, and complete with her what they had to say. But the problem was, she didn't want to see them. She said to me, you know, I've spent so many years taking care of everybody else, and now I've never taken any time to be with myself, and now I'm dying. I think I got to do that. I said, yeah, that sounds pretty wise to me. So she said, what can I do? You know, all these people, she'd been so used to just doing what everybody else wanted her to do. And so I said, let's sit together. Let's just be without trying to solve it and listen. And we sat for a time. She kind of sat up in bed and it was over. She said, you know, if I speak from the place of wisdom, I know that I need solitude, but I also know that all these people want to see me. So I'm gonna write them a letter. I'm going to write a letter and send it to everyone, thanking them, blessing them, telling them how much they mean to me, and then explaining that I've never taken any time for myself and ask that they grant me this as the, as the last gift, that I could have some quiet time before I die." And so she did. We know if we take the time to listen. It's so clear in us. Wisdom is simple. Wisdom is generous. Let's see. Camus, where are you? Disappeared, huh? No, it's not the right one. I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something it has given me to do. You've probably heard this before, huh? I'm only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something it is given me to do. Wisdom, graciousness. I invite you to look in the course of this week ahead, to feel for your own wise heart, to look in the places of conflict, in the culture around, in your own life, and take time to be still and listen. And you will know there is a wisdom that you carry, that you can trust and see that will illuminate your way. It said, like a sunrise on a beautiful morning, like the clearing of fog, like a lamp that was overturned, set upright and lit again in the darkness. When we take the time to listen, the wisdom of the heart shines free. Last little story. It's said in the Hasidic mystical tradition that on the holiest days, certain prayers and celebrations must be made just at the end of the night. So one old rabbi was asked by his pupils how they could tell when the night had ended and the day had begun so they'd know when to say these prayers. Could it be, asked one of the students, that it's the moment when you can distinguish the lines in your hand? No, answered the rabbi. Well, then, could it be when you see an animal in the distance and can tell whether it's a sheep or a dog? No, he answered. And another said, is it when you can look at a tree in the distance and tell whether it is a fig tree or a peach tree? No, answered the rabbi. Then what is it, the pupil demanded. It is when you can look on the face of any man or woman and see that this is your sister or your brother. Because if you cannot see this, It is still night. Let's sit for a moment. as you sit, let yourself bring to mind, remember some conflict or difficulty in your life, something that you struggle with, just for a moment. And then imagine as you sit and picture the conflict Imagine that you could take advice from the Buddha or Solomon or Mother Mary or Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion. Imagine they could come and give you a few words of their wisdom for this difficulty. Let yourself hear, sense, think of. Imagine what they'd say any way you can. You can know. And take these words to heart and remember one tiny thing. Where did Buddha, Solomon, Mother Mary, Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion, whoever you spoke to, where did they come from? Remember that this voice of wisdom is within your own heart.